The teaching for this morning comes from Acts 17, 16 through 17, and 21 through 34. This is God's word. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. So we're uh, taking a break from uh, what we've been looking at this year. We've been working our way through the book of Genesis and the book of Romans, and we're taking the month of September to revisit our vision. And in particular, we're going to look. We're looking at our core values uh, this month, and our vision, which we uh, worked on all through 2017 and uh, we're able to finalize the beginning of this year, is really meant to answer some key questions that can keep us focused as a church on why we're here and and who we are and and what are we doing. And in fact, if you open up to the opening part of your uh, worship folder, you'll see there uh, the uh, most succinct version of our vision, and we'll see there a vision statement, which really is meant to summarize why are we here? It answers that question. Why are we here? And our core values are meant to answer the question, well, who are we? What are those biblical themes and priorities that most define us? Uh, Those biblical themes and priorities and commitments that we are unwilling to move off of or to waver from. And then our goals or objectives there at the end really answer the question, how how will we do ministry practically? What will be the things that we are pursuing uh, as we endeavor to uh, follow after our vision? 
And so we're in the midst of looking at our core values. And this week we come to the last of the four, which is city focus. And I want to start out just by trying to uh, give you some sense of uh, why did we pick that? How did we land on city focus as uh, the, four, the fourth of the four core values? Well, in, in big picture, it's because it's the logical outworking of the previous three. If the gospel is the good news about what God has done, and worship is the response to that good news... And when that good news takes root in us and bubbles out of our worship into our relationship to one another, into our community together, where does it go from there? As it takes root in our relationships and our common life together, it has to bubble out into our neighbors and our neighborhoods and our city. But even more than that, we, we landed on city focus as elders here because of Red Mountain. From the very beginning, Red Mountain Church has always desired to be a church for the city, a church for the people in the neighborhoods of the city. And yet, we've noticed that as our church has grown, we started in 2001, uh, as we've uh, sort of looked back on our history, we're a different church now. Uh, We have folks who live in the city, we have folks who live outside the city. But one of the things that continues, I think, to unite us in addition to the good news about Jesus is a love for the city, a desire to be involved in the life of the city. And by city, we, we mean the sort of the specific place called the city of Birmingham. And therefore, city focus is really meant to, to illustrate or to highlight or keep in front of us a deep commitment that as a church, regardless of where we live or who God brings to this church, we are self-consciously trying to turn our attention and our efforts towards the city and its needs, its complexities, its opportunities. But in addition to that, there's actually a cultural shift that has taken place in the United States and even globally Uh, but particularly in the United States, since the early 90s. And in the early 90s, people began to not just, um, well, prior to that, prior to the early 90s, people were leaving cities across the nation. And in the early 90s, that, that trend began to shift. And people stopped leaving and, in fact, began moving back into the cities. To the point now to where writers and thinkers really across a political and religious spectrum all say something like this, that as cities go, so goes the world. And that to go to the cities is necessary for anyone who wants to have an impact on how life is lived in this world. And in fact, as, as those folks who spend their time kind of tracking global trends and Uh, studying cities, what they're noticing is that we are moving toward a world in which 80% of the world's population will live in cities. 80% of the world's population will live in cities. What's really striking about that is just 300 years ago, only 3% of the world's population lived in cities. That is a 
cataclysmic shift. And we are in the midst of that. However, whatever the, the global trends are, or even trends within our own country, I think it's undeniable that we are seeing a resurgence or a regeneration of interest and enthusiasm and investment, even in our own city. You just have to look around to see all, all of the development going on, all of the old buildings that are being rehabbed. Uh, the amount of, uh, I find this comical to me, but the amount of valet parking. <laughs> In Philly, that's where we came from, you don't have valet parking. You're on your own. Um, valet parking. We'll talk about that, actually, in a moment. Um, But it's undeniable. People are coming back into the city. They're interested in the city in a way that even 10 10 years ago was, I don't know, I'm not from here, but my my guess is when I've talked to many of you, it was kind of unthinkable. Um, But I would also say it is way too early to draw any conclusions about our city and what we see happening. Uh, Some things look really promising. But to be honest, my sort of biased perspective, some look, frankly, just quite opportunistic. Um, Everything remains to be seen. It remains to be seen. What will the impact be on the powerless and the poor? For me, that will really be the measure of what we're seeing happen. And I am very much reluctant to get my hopes up. But I think that's precisely where the church, focusing on the city, has so much to offer the city. Because God's heart is tilted toward the weak and the powerless and the poor. And if you understand grace, you know that. You know what it is to be weak. You know what it is to be poor, even if you are not financially poor. And so what I want to do is I I want to take us back to the scriptures to give us a framework for assessing and serving our city. And I want to do that from Acts chapter 17. And we don't have time to go into this, but just as a, a little aside, the city is an incredibly important feature in the scriptures. And one clear example of this is every single one, except for Paul's pastoral letters to Timothy and Titus, all of his letters are sent to cities. The cities feature as a prominent role in God's work in the world. So let's look at Acts chapter 17, and I want us to see three things from this passage. We're going to see the features of the city. We're going to see the struggle of the city And then we'll finish with the hope of the city. So the features, the struggle, and the hope of the city. First, let's look at what features do we see of the city here in this passage. Look in verse 17. Notice here, uh, Paul, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is recounting what Paul is doing here in the city of Athens. He says that Paul reasoned in the synagogue. In other words, the city is full of places of worship. But he also uh, spent time in the marketplace. Again, in verse 17. That is to say that the city is not only full of places of worship, but places of business, of commerce. Verse 21. 
all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there. The city is a diverse place. Cities attract people who are different than one another. In addition, notice in verse 22, Paul addresses and is standing in the midst of what is called the Areopagus. Now in Athens, back in the ancient world, uh, the Areopagus, you can think of, they were the cultural gatekeepers. This was a, a council, a ruling council that wanted to hear what people thought and they deliberated on this and would sort of adjudicate what was worth paying attention to and holding on to and what was worth uh, dismissing and, and not paying attention to. So cultural gatekeepers. I can, you can think of any number of examples of that in our own city. Art counts, arts councils, city government, neighborhood associations, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Cities are full of cultural gatekeepers. But also notice, notice in verse 21. Here Luke describes these, these, these people, this diverse group of people, Athenians and the foreigners, as people who love to spend their time learning about, talking about anything that was new. And here it comes off perhaps a little bit um, critical, but for the sake of the feature here of cities, cities are places that are creative, they're innovative. Uh, they thrive on the new and the novel, especially in contrast to the conventional and the predictable. But what I want you to see in, in line with, in, in addition to all of those features, which really are not unique to Athens, they're, those are features of any city at any point in history. There are two features that really bookend all of these. Look here in verse 16. What did Paul see? He saw that the city was full of idols. And then, notice down in verse 22, as Paul begins to speak to the Areopagus, the cultural gatekeepers, he says, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. And he bookends the features of this city with those two things. And I find this very fascinating because it's consistent with the rest of the scripture. Here Paul actually, in many ways, the way that Luke crafts this chapter, brings together idolatry and religion. I find that fascinating. The implication of that is the gospel is neither of those. But these two features, this weaving together of idolatry and this observation that the city is very religious tells us something. It tells us something Paul tells us in the beginning of Romans chapter 1. All people know God. That all people and the depths of their being are fundamentally religious spiritual beings. And therefore, cities are deeply spiritual places. And that is true of the most irreligious city on the face of the planet. That the scriptures describe us, and especially cities, as not irreligious places, but deeply religious places. 
And therefore, here, this is the, where the struggle of the city comes to the surface. What is the struggle of the city? Secondly here, regardless of the city's diversity, which we've seen, or its cultural richness, or its economic opportunity, or even its religious plurality, or its openness to new ideas, it is a fundamentally religious place. And what does that mean? It is that kind of place because it's full of people. We should never think of the city in some abstract sense. Divorced from or distinguished from its people. And if we're going to follow the perspective and the framework the scriptures give us, the city is a deeply misguided religious place. And what we mean by that is that it is that way because it's full of people looking to build their lives on something that can bear the weight of their, of their trust, of their hopes, of their desires. Let me say that again. The city is a place full of people looking for something that can bear the weight of their deepest longings, of their deepest desires. Now, I want us to think for a moment that what that means is that the city, regardless of what it says about religion or regardless of what it says about Christianity, it is full of worshipers. And if you've been around Red Mountain at all or the church at all, you've probably heard that. That at the very core of who we are, we are worshiping beings. And so let's ask the question, how is Birmingham a religious place? And I want to push you to think here, you can't say because it's in the south. (laughs) Because Paul is saying Athens, a pagan city, was deeply religious. Very different than what we, we might call the American south. What are its idols? In other words, what features point to what matters most to us as a city? And I think one way to begin, I'm not going to answer that question for us today. I think it's way too complicated and and rich to answer it. But I want to get us thinking about that. One way to look at that, look at the skyline of the city. What are the things that most matter to the city? Usually are the things you can see the most obviously. So let's think for a moment. What do we see? We see very tall buildings, which are labeled with the names of a bank or a mobile uh, phone company or hospitals or insurance companies or law firms, just to name a few. I'll give you an example of what I mean from uh, my own uh, time at Duke University, just so you know. Um, I can make fun of my own alma mater. There is a law or a uh, regulation in the bylaws at Duke University that there is no building is allowed to be built that's taller than Duke Chapel. And if you've never been to that campus, there is a very beautiful, big, tall cathedral in the center of the campus. But do you know what is the second tallest building on that campus? only by a very, very small bit. And do you know what is at the top of this building? It is 
Coach K's office. And if you don't know who Coach K is, I, amen, brother. I'll forgive you. Coach K is the basketball coach at Duke. Just looking at the skyline, what matters most at Duke? Well, it's not the cathedral, I can tell you that. It's the basketball program. What, <laughs> what are the idols? What is the landscape of Birmingham? What does it tell us about our idolatries? And the reason I'm bringing this up is because cities really are magnifying glasses. Cities expose and reveal two dimensions of human existence or human undertaking. It's if you look at the front of your worship folder, there's a quote there that reads this. It says, The city, while an accumulator of the energies of culture, is also an accumulator of the potencies of evil. That's sort of a, a mouthful, but here's what it's saying. Cities are duplicitous. Cities have both the beauties and, and the, um, the creativity and the, uh, the good things of human endeavor and human work, but they also highlight the injustices, the wrongs, the inequities of human endeavor and our common life together. They're duplicitous. And in fact, what I want you to see is that our city is really no different than your own personal experience every day. Cities have an internal struggle and strife, just like we experience in our own personal lives. And therefore, the, the help and the hope that we need is the same that our city needs. So let's look at, thirdly here, what is the hope of the city? Notice where Paul begins in... Uh, Early on here, he begins in verse 23, after he says, I've, I've been walking around your city, I've been taking note of the landscape, I've been noticing the things that matter most to you, and I came across this one altar that says, to the unknown God. Paul begins with their ignorance, with what they admit they don't know, where they acknowledge their greatest sense of need. And what does he do? He makes three claims about God as the hope of the city. He puts before them and before us that this God that he is teaching them about, he is the God of creation, he's the God of providence, and he's the God of redemption. This is Paul's claim this is the hope of the city. When he says that he is the God of creation, notice in verse 24, he says that the God I'm telling you about, he doesn't live in temples made by man. Uh, he is not the product of our own imagination, our own creativity, of our own crafting. He is telling us that this God is independent from creation. He stands outside of creation. He is made the heavens and the earth. And not only that, he is the giver of all good gifts. Look in verse 25. He says that he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's the God of creation. But he's also the God of providence. Notice in verse 26, 
towards the middle there to the end of verse 29. In verse 26, he says that this God has determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of our dwelling places. What's he saying there? Let me put it to you like this. What he's saying is that everyday life, everyday life is fertile ground for discovering God. That God's providence, his involvement in the world as we know it, is intended to bring you to him. In other words, the problem isn't with God's creation and the pointers and clues that he has given. The problem is with us and our blindness. To say that that this God is the God of providence is to say that he is intimately involved in the everyday and the ordinary. And what that means for you and me is we we are not here by accident. We are here because God is the creator and God has made you And he has put you here. He has put us here together for this place. But he's also the God of redemption. Verses 30 and 31. Paul says that the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What is this God really like? How is he different than all of these other gods that are represented there in Athens? Or all of the other gods or idols that we might see and identify in our own city and in our own lives? Well, the real question is, what Paul is saying here is that he is not a God that you appease and coerce which is essentially what was going on in Athens. No, he is a God of grace. He's not a God that we work to get back to. He is a God who comes to us. You see, the real hope of the city isn't just that God made, all, made everything, though that is amazing, or that God is deeply involved in our everyday lives. The real hope of the city is that this God makes himself known. He is not hiding. And he does it in Jesus, who is himself God, the second person of the Trinity. In other words, what Paul is saying is the hope of the city is a God who reveals himself, even in suffering and dying and rising again. Why is that so important? Because what Paul tells us here is that regardless of who you are or where you're from or what you believe, the entire future of the world is bound up with this man, this man Jesus. That it is in this man Jesus, God pours out his grace and his forgiveness and his justice. So that when he says here, that he will judge the world in righteousness. What he's saying is, it is in Jesus that I am going to make the whole world right again. Why should we care about our city? Because we are bound up with a God 
who has, has gone to inexplicable lengths to unravel sin, to unravel guilt and shame, to unravel everything that is resident in our hearts and in our city's life that would like nothing more than to rip life apart. He wants to put it back together. And he does that. He gives clues and pointers to that great day as we, his people, love our city. Now, what might this look like practically? It's one thing to say all of this, but I want to give you just very quickly five ideas, which I got from um, thinking about this from Tim Keller's book called Center Church. If you don't know who Tim Keller is, he's a pastor in New York. He's done a lot of, of thinking about this. But first, what do we need to We need to respect urban sensibilities. What does that mean? Well, if you've ever lived in a city, uh, you don't have a lot of space. Uh, you bump elbows with people a lot. They take your parking spaces. I remember living in Philly, and uh, when it snowed, you had to shovel out your parking spot, and people got aggressive about that parking spot. <laughs> you saw lawn chairs, traffic cones in those parking spots, because what? People come take your spot. The city's edgy. It's rough around the edges. There's often disorder. doesn't necessarily work as well as some places, and often it's not as safe. Whereas in contrast, perhaps many of us are very much beholden to, we like our space, uh, we like our order, uh, we like our privacy, and we want to know we're safe. Now, I'm not saying one of those is better or worse than the other. I'm just saying for us to love the city well, we have to be sensitive to urban sensibilities. But not only that, we also need to be sensitive to cultural differences. Remember, one of the main features was cities are diverse. People from different places and backgrounds, different races and cultures. And in particular for us, and I think this is specifically true for us in Birmingham, a city that has been rent asunder for a long, long time along racial, class, and social lines we have to learn to grow and see how many of our own attitudes and habits are deeply tied to race and class. In other words, many of our habits and attitudes are not simply just the way things are. Many of the things that we like, our attitudes and preferences, really are cultural. They're racial. They're part of the class that you live in or you grew up in. And we have got to be very sensitive to those differences. Thirdly, we need a commitment to neighborhood and justice. And all I want to say about this is that we are now a congregation that is made up of folks who live in a variety of neighborhoods. And the question that we have is why we, as in our vision, say all the people in places of Birmingham What's it look like for us to pursue the flourishing of every neighborhood in Birmingham? Not just some, and not just the ones that we live in, but every neighborhood. Fourth, what does it look like for us to integrate our faith and work? What does, or how should faith express itself in public life? 
one of the things I continue to think about and want to help us to do is how do we create time and opportunity in our church for us to wrestle with theological questions, um, ethical questions, practical questions that you face in your daily life, in your daily work. It's not enough to just to learn how to read the Bible. As a church, we need to help one another figure out how do we live out our faith in the public realm with wisdom and courage and patience. And then last, we need to have a bias towards what I'm calling nuanced evangelism. If you take into account the variety of people in the city and how diverse it is, there is simply no one-size-fits-all way of talking about the Christian faith or one method to put people through. In fact, what it really requires is us to immerse ourselves in the attitudes, the views, the perspectives, the hopes, and the dreams of this place. So where do we begin when it comes to our city focus and that priority? Well, verse 30, God commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, for many people, that term is a negative term, but in the Bible, it is a term of profound hope. It is a term that describes there is a whole new possibility for living life, a whole new way of living life. And yet, as God's people here, notice what Paul faced. Even when we are endeavoring to take in the very things we hope others would embrace, some people mocked him. Some people said, yeah, I don't know, I'd like to hear more. But then others believed, and they trusted in Jesus And that is the hope of the city. That the God who made everything, the God who is intimately involved in everything that we're doing, and the God who redeems sinners to make all things new. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we continue to look at the scriptures for for help and wisdom, as we live our common life together, we ask that you would give us a profound and deep love for our city and our neighbors, and our neighborhoods. We pray that you'd make us wise, that you would make us sensitive to the complexity of the landscape, that you'd give us courage and patience. And most of all, we ask that you would help us to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus, that we would long as your people to to grow in grace. And in doing so, we ask that you would cause Uh, your kingdom to flourish in this place. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.